invite you to open your Bibles to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, familiar story, Luke chapter 18. This is a story that we commonly refer to as the rich young ruler. Here's a man who wanted something desperate enough that he did something fairly unusual. You ever done that? Have you ever wanted something so bad it's all you could think about? Maybe you lost sleep over it until you found out what it was going to cost. <laughs> I remember the first time I ever took our children to an amusement park. They thought the roller coasters were really cool. Dad, let's get one of these for the house. <laughs> you know, and in a moment of without thinking, you know, you kind of your mind goes there for a minute and you think, where would we put that? And then, oh, we don't have $40 million, you know. <laughs> I remember as a teenager, the first car I remember seeing that I just kind of got slobbery over, you know, it's just, I've got to have this car. Remember talking to my dad. Now, you teenagers have never even heard of this car company. It was a Datsun. You ever heard of that? Now it's a Nissan. That was back in the day when they were called Datsuns. And, you know, it was like this 240Z, you know. This was just this cool car. I could picture myself in it. I remember not being able to sleep trying to talk my dad into buying me this car. My dad said, well, not only, son, can you not afford the car, let me just show you what the insurance is going to be on a 16-year-old male. And then I realized that was going to be about as much as the car cost. We see a man come to Jesus, and he wanted something desperately. He had probably lost sleep over it. Let's look at this first verse of this passage. It's Luke chapter 18, verse 18. And I call this an eternally significant question. In fact, I think it's the most important question that you or I will ever ask. And that's this. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Most important question, what do I do for eternal life? How will I spend eternity with God? So this guy, we find this story, this, this encounter with Jesus, both in Matthew and in Mark and now in Luke's gospel. We call him the rich young ruler. Well, nowhere in Luke's gospel does it really call him young it does call him rich later on. We find out he's rich and that he's a ruler. You've got to go to Matthew's gospel to get the young part of it. Is in the body of the passage, uh, he's referred to as a young man. But who is this ruler? Some have thought, well, maybe he's a member of the Sanhedrin or something of that nature. But that's unlikely because he's young. And it would have been very unusual for a young man to be in that position. And really, the Bible doesn't make it clear. And it's not all that important. It's just he was referred to as a ruler. So he was a Jewish guy. And so whether he was a ruler in the government or a ruler in the religious system, we know that he was a ruler. Over in Matthew and Mark, we find out that he ran after Jesus. Which again, I said this was, he went to extraordinary means to get an answer to his question. He ran after Jesus and then actually knelt before him and asked him the question. And he started with this phrase, good teacher. Where did that come from? Well, I don't know that this guy necessarily viewed Jesus as a good teacher. In fact, Jesus had little or no esteem among the rulers of that day. And even among the Jewish people, he didn't have that much esteem. So perhaps he was just using this as a polite expression. Whether he really got it, who Jesus was or not, I think is evident in the passage. He really did. But he says, good teacher. And then here's the question. What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life well what do you have to do to inherit something well you better not do anything <laughs> you know the way you inherit something is for somebody to die and leave you money that's how you inherit 
So if you're a part of their death, you're probably not going to get to take in a part of the inheritance, all right? That's happened before. So he says, what must I do to inherit? Why do you think his mind is on this concept of inheriting? Well, I'm reading into the passage here, and I'm, I'm confessing that up front. But I think we know about this guy because he was young and wealthy. Chances are he had not earned his wealth. He had inherited everything he had up to that point. He could look at a mansion that he lived in. He probably looked at livestock. He probably looked at gold and silver. He probably had servants. And every bit of that was paid for, not by his efforts, but by somebody else's efforts. Probably his parents had left him, his dad had left him an inheritance. And so he had that. And he he recognized, I lack one thing, and that is I don't have eternal life. I've got everything else. I've got everything the world would say could make you happy. But I don't have eternal life. And so he wanted eternal life. And yet he asked the question, what must I do? The question that he asked centered on a divisive point between two religious factions in the Jewish faith. You've heard of Pharisees. Have you ever heard of the Sadducees? The Sadducees really only adhered to the first five books of the Bible, which is we refer to as the Torah. It's the law. And there's really no mention in the Torah of eternal life. And so the Sadducees didn't think there was any such thing as eternal life. The Pharisees read the entire Old Testament, and they knew there was something after this life. And so I guess there was a debate between Sadducees and Pharisees over eternal life. And so this guy had apparently come down on the side of, well, if there is something after this life, what have I got to do to make sure I'm there? And I don't know what he had in his mind if he thought Jesus would have said, well, if you just give an offering, you can have eternal life. Or if you do this physical deed, you can have eternal life. But that's where the man's question comes from. And it assumes two things. First of all, it assumes that salvation is earned. That there's something he could do to ensure himself salvation. Second thing it assumes is that he hadn't earned it yet. Everything this man had at his disposal, he was a ruler, so he had the prestige among the people. He was very wealthy, so he had that going for him. But he recognized, none of that has earned it for me yet. So what do I have to do? Eternally significant question. Well, let's look at the straightforward answer that Jesus gives him. Let me continue reading in that passage. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder or do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. The young man said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow now, Jesus gives him a straightforward answer, but i got to tell you, at the beginning of his answer is really to get, he does this to get at the heart of the young man. So he asks the question, first of all, why do you call me good? That's a phrase reserved for God alone. And so you've called me good teacher. Now, I think the guy was just calling him good just to be nice. It was a polite expression. But Jesus was trying to get to the point, do you recognize that you're talking to God himself? The, the phrase good is only to be used to refer to God. Do you recognize how close you are to your answer here? Why do you call me good? Now, Jesus was not denying that he was good. All right? 
Jesus was trying to get the guy to think. This guy wanted a simple answer. And I think if Jesus had said, take out your checkbook, write me a check, here's the amount, the guy would have probably done it, been happy, and gone on his way. Or if Jesus had said, hey, it's six miles over to Bethlehem, why don't you run over there and back with me on your shoulders? The guy might have even taken that. But Jesus starts with this question, why do you call me good? And then he says this, you know the commandments. Again, this guy was a Jew. He had been schooled in the commandments. And so Jesus gives him five of the Ten Commandments. Now, here's a little test for you. How many commandments are there in the Ten Commandments? If you're thinking ten, you're right. He doesn't name all ten of them, though, does he? In fact, the five that he names only have to do, he skips the first four that have to do with your relationship with God. And he only mentions the ones that have to do with your relationship with your fellow man, like don't commit adultery and don't murder and don't steal and don't lie. And so he says, you know the commandments, and he lists, he names five of them. And then listen to what the guy says. He says, teacher, I've kept all that. Now, he recognized that there was still something missing, but this guy says, I've kept all those. Now, I don't know what his posture has become at this point. We know from Matthew and Mark that he, was, he had ran to Jesus and kneeled and at some point asked the question. I'm kind of picturing by now he's probably standing up thinking, oh, I've kept all that. If, if that's part of it, I've kept all that. Well, let me ask you, do you want to be judged based on your keeping the Ten Commandments or even just those five? The answer is no. Why? Because the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. How many sins does it take to make you a sinner? One. That's right. Good answer. And I think some of us somehow think, well... God's got these huge scales in heaven. And as long as when I get there, my good stuff outweighs my bad stuff. You ever thought that? Now, don't answer that out loud. But if that has ever crossed your mind, that as long as I can do enough good stuff to make up for my bad stuff, that's kind of where this guy was coming from. What have I got to do to tip the scales in my favor? Well, this guy said, hey, I've kept all that. Feeling pretty good about myself. Well, None of us in here want to do that. In fact, if anybody in here would stand up and don't do it, but if you're thinking, well, I could stand up and say I've kept all those, well, you've already broken one of them. Don't lie. Okay? And even if you've been good, even if you only commit like three sins a day, there's only maybe three times a day that you think the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, or do the wrong thing, three sins multiplied over the course of years close to a 1,000. You live 70 years, you got 70,000 sins. Do you want to face God with 70,000 sins and say, hey, let me in. I know I've got these 70,000 sins over here, but let's focus on the good stuff. You don't face God like that. It only takes one sin to make you a sinner. So Jesus starts with this, okay, you want to talk about do? Then let's see how you're doing on the do stuff. And then he says this. He says only one thing. You lack. Now, again, I don't know what the guy's state of mind was at this point. He wants eternal life. He's got a lot of resources to obtain it, but he recognizes he doesn't have it yet, and he doesn't know how to get it. And Jesus says, keep the commandments. Let me share a verse with you. Galatians 3.24, it says, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The purpose, the point of the law in the Old Testament. There's not just ten commandments. There's a bunch of others. We know the big ten, but there's a lot of other law. 
Nobody could keep the law. Jesus came not to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it, but to point out the fact that you need a Savior. The point you should have come to at the end of the Ten Commandments is, God, I haven't kept that. And that's what Paul means in Galatians when he says the law is our tutor leading us to faith in Christ. To recognize I'm not righteous in my activity. My, my deeds are, are not righteous. And so Jesus says to this guy, one thing you lack. Again, I think you've got to be feeling pretty good right now. If you've asked for eternal life and you've already passed the commandment test and now Jesus says, hey, just one thing you lack. I think the guy's thinking, well, that's what I came here for. Tell me what that one thing is. And what does Jesus say? Go and sell all you possess and distribute it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. In case you're wondering what the one thing he lacked is, it's that last line. Come, follow me. And yet Jesus knew the thing that would keep this man from following him was his stuff. He says, go and sell all you possess. Literally, the word means everything you've got, everything you have a grip on. Whatever you're gripped to right now, get rid of it because it will keep you from following me. Whatever you have clenched your fist around, get rid of it, and then go distribute it to the poor. Sell it, distribute it to the poor. And then come and you shall have, same word now for grip, okay? You've loosened your grip over here, you're going to re-grip. And you're going to re-grip on treasure in heaven. You're going to still have something, but it's going to be treasure in heaven and not the stuff on earth. Have you ever found yourself gripping onto something and you realize after a while, you know what? That was the wrong thing to be gripping. Not, not meaning to get too personal here, but girls, you ever had a boyfriend that you thought, man, this is the best guy on the planet? And you may do anything to keep your boyfriend, and then you finally realize, you know what? He isn't worth keeping. When you come to that place, i got two words for you. Hamburger, roadmap. You know, when you finally realize, this guy really isn't helping me in my walk with Christ. He doesn't even love me. He's just kind of using me. Give him a hamburger, in case he's hungry, and a road map out of your life. And if it's dark, give him a flashlight so he won't get lost on the way. And guys, maybe you need to do the same thing. We, we find in our lives things that we think, I've got to keep this. And for most of us in the room, we wouldn't put ourselves in the rich young ruler's case. We think, well, I'm not rich. The truth is, if you live in America, you are. If you've got more than one outfit to wear and more than a one-room place to live and you've got food for the day, compared to the rest of the world, you are rich. We just don't think of ourselves that way. But what is it maybe that you're clenched to, that you've got a grip on, that you don't want to let go of? Jesus says, let go of the grip and understand you have the desperate need for a Savior. And I've got something better for you to grip onto, and that is treasure in heaven. Eternal life that where moth can't destroy, rust can't destroy, decay, thieves can't steal it. Your deposits are better there than they are on earth. See, there was a commonly held belief in that day that material blessings were a sign of God's blessings. So people that were rich kind of went around thinking, the reason I'm rich is because God has blessed me. Well, it may be that God has blessed you. That's not always the case. 
There'll be some wealthy people that will spend eternity separated from God. And folks, this idea of wealth being a blessing from God is not just contained in the New Testament. Have you ever watched some religious television? It seems to be that the evidence to some of these people that God's blessed you and that you're okay with God is that you're wealthy. Well, that's not true. In fact, Jesus, blessed of God, said he didn't even have a place to lay his head. And Jesus says, now, take all that stuff that you've got, give it away. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Here's the cool thing about following Jesus, because that's the bottom line. And, folks, that's the thing for us, too. If you've got the question this morning, what do I have to do to have eternal life? Bottom line is, get rid of anything that would keep you from following Jesus and follow Jesus. If you don't hear me say anything else today, you need to hear me say that. That what Jesus would say to you, just like the rich young ruler, he may not say to you that you need to sell your possessions. He may say, you know what, you need to get rid of this. Or this particular thing has become an idol in your life. For this guy, his idol was his wealth. For you, it may be popularity. It may be that you care more about what people think about you than you do about God. Or it may be some thing that you're trying to attain that's more important to you than God is. Jesus would say the same thing. Hey, come follow me. But he knows us well enough to know this will keep you from it. Get rid of it. The good thing about following somebody is somebody else knows the way. If you're following them, hopefully they know where they're going. When Jesus says, follow me, you can trust that Jesus knows the way. Remember his disciples said, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. The other thing about following somebody is you don't have to follow from a distance. You can follow somebody really close. Anybody ever taken ballroom dancing? When I was growing up in Macon, Georgia, cotillion was a big deal, and we had to learn to dance. For a sixth-grade boy, to even touch a girl at that time was just a little frightening. But we learned that she followed your lead, and she wasn't ten steps behind you. She was right there with you. So you don't have to follow Jesus from a distance, but he can still lead. And the other cool thing about it is if you're following Jesus, he's going to get wherever you go with you. You're not going to be alone. So Jesus says, come, follow me. Then let's look at the responses to that word. Let me read the rest of the passage. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? Jesus said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Three responses that we see on that day, and I'll close with these. First one, the ruler responded with sadness. It says that when he heard this saying of Jesus, and what, was, what did he hear Jesus say? You need to come follow me. But in order for you to follow me, you're going to have to let go of the stuff that will keep you from following me. So go and sell all your stuff, all that stuff you inherited that you think is bringing you happiness. Get rid of it. Come follow me. And you're still going to have treasure, but it's going to be treasure in heaven, which is eternal. For some reason, that didn't sound good to this guy. And it says he became sad. In fact, one translation says, at that his face fell. 
Now, I read that, and I take things literally sometimes. And I think, you know, it would be really cool if every time I preached and people rejected Jesus, their face fell. (laughs) Pick up your face and put it back on. So he becomes gloomy. His face fell. You know, at one point, Jesus says, only one thing you lack, I think. At this point, he's standing up, chest poked out, head in the air. And then here's what the one thing was, and it says he became gloomy. He got sad. He literally grieved. In fact, we find out that he leaves. He walks away sad. Only person that ever left Jesus hurting. Most people that came to Jesus got healed. This guy left in pain because of what Jesus said. See, the truth really is you can't serve two masters. This guy did the balancing act. He wanted both. And yet Jesus said over in Matthew, you can't serve God and wealth. You'll either love one and hate the other or serve one and hate the other. You can't have both. This guy was extremely rich. I love the literal translation of extremely, literally vehemently. That's how much money this guy had. Probably the most wealthy guy in the town. And yet he walked away with sadness. So he responded with sadness. Jesus responds with clarity. Jesus clears things up because other people are listening. Not just this guy, but the disciples are listening. The other people following him are listening. They just watched this encounter, and they're back there wondering. We're going to get to them in just a minute, but they're kind of wondering, wait a minute. You know, I'm sure some of the disciples are kind of thinking, Jesus, don't let this guy walk away. He's rich. Let's at least give him a support letter. <laughs> Let's talk to him about tax-deductible gifts. And yet Jesus says how hard it is for the wealthy. Literally, the word's impractical for the wealthy. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And I know you've heard explanations. There's a couple that are very popular out there. Let me debunk both of them today. I've heard some people say, well, what he's talking about here is a place in the gate called the eye of the needle, and camels would approach it, and they had to get down. And I find no support for that in history or in Scripture. And yet I've heard that all my life. Another one is, if you change two of the letters in the word camel, you get the word cable. Not cable television, but a big cable. And so some say, well, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about a big cable that you couldn't put through the eye of a needle. There's no support for that either. What's Jesus talking about? I think Jesus is talking about a camel. If you ever go to the Holy Land, there's a lot of them. And I think he's using a hyperbole. And he's simply saying... For you who are wealthy, if that's the most important thing in your life, it's going to be real difficult for you. And to exaggerate, to give an exaggeration to make the point, he says, imagine, if you will, taking a camel and trying to thread a needle's eye with it. In fact, there was a rabbinic saying similar to that. It was talking about putting an elephant through a needle's eye. I don't think he's talking about a place in the gate. I think he's talking about a literal sewing needle. So what's Jesus saying? Is Jesus saying it's impossible for the wealthy to be saved? It's not what he's saying. Does the Bible say that money is the root of all evil? No. What does it say? It says the love of money is the root of all evil. So I've already said, compared to the rest of the world, everybody in here is rich. Does that mean we're without hope? No. It means this, though. Students, look at me. Get this. If the most important thing in your life is something other than Jesus, there's got to be a change that takes place. In fact, I love a quote from C.S. Lewis. Listen to this. 
He said, God can bring a camel through the eye of a needle, but the camel will not be the same creature after coming through a needle's eye. See, in order for you to be saved, it's about becoming brand new. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 is talking about. If anyone is in Christ, he is a brand new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So today, it may not be that God's convicting you about, hey, you've got a lot of stuff you need to get rid of. But if God's convicting you about anything that's standing between you and Him, then today He would ask, get rid of that. And maybe you're even a believer and you recognize, you know what, my walk with Christ lately has been real dry. Well, it's not because He moved. Maybe it's because you've allowed things to creep into your life that are really more important to you right now than He is. You used to spend time with Him. You used to read the Bible. You used to pray. You used to love going to church. Now it all seems like a drudgery and it's dead and dry. The invitation for you today would be to come back and say, God, please show me where have I allowed things, the stuff, to creep in and crowd you out. And God, whatever it is you show me, I want to get rid of it. The last thing is the question the people respond with. The others respond with a question, then who can be saved? Listen, if somebody that's got it all can't be saved, who can be? Well, the answer is, those, come, those who come to Jesus with nothing. All of us come empty-handed to the cross. The ground is level. It's not about who, the, who is a ruler and who's not. It's not about who's wealthy and who's not. It's about who comes and confesses, I need a Savior. So whether you've got a stacked bank account or whether you have nothing, you're overdrawn. We come to Jesus equally. And there we receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Jesus says, well, the things that are impossible with people, they're possible with God. It's possible for God to thread the needle with a camel. It's possible for God to bring you into the kingdom. Why is it that way? Well, it's because of what Paul said in Ephesians 2. How are we saved? We're saved by faith. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, and it's grace. We're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not about what we bring in our hands to Him. It's about what He gives us. And why is that? Well, because if we could claim anything, then we could be boastful. We could say, look what I've done. I earned my salvation. No, you didn't. If you're a child of God, it's because He gave a gift. And it was grace, something that you didn't deserve. The rich young ruler walked away. And I have to ask the question, where's his stuff now? Ever thought about that? The rich young ruler who made a decision, I'm going to hold on to my stuff and give up eternal life. Does he still have his stuff? No, this was 2,000 years ago. Most of his stuff has decayed. If any of maybe the gold or silver, I mean, but all the servants and the house and the livestock is gone. Somebody else has the gold or the silver if it still remains. He doesn't have it. He sure didn't take it with him. And as ridiculous as it is to look at him and think, he gave up what you can keep for eternity to hold on to something you can't even hold on to. As ridiculous as that is, ask yourself the question, God, is there anything in my life that I'm holding on to that's just as ridiculous. Whether it's a person, 
or possession or a position. None of it's worth missing. Relationship with God and eternal life. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. God, thank you that salvation truly is a gift. It's not something we earn. It's not about how big a check we can write. It's not about anything we can do. It's about coming to you and recognizing that we are desperately needy for a Savior. And so, God, that puts us all equal. That puts us on level ground at the cross. It's not about what we can do. It's about what you have already done. You paid the price for our sin by dying on the cross. You satisfied the wrath of God. And so now, through faith in Jesus Christ, we're offered grace. So God, I pray for anyone here today that doesn't know you. And God, today, that sounds like good news that they could trust Christ as their Savior and have eternal life. God, I pray today would be the day of their salvation where they would acknowledge, Lord, I need a Savior. And they would come to you through faith. God, for others who are here that they're believers, but God, they recognize in their life that they have drifted and they've allowed the stuff of this world to become a passion that they're pursuing to the exclusion of you. God, turn us around. God, it's okay to own some stuff, but it isn't okay when that stuff owns us. God, again, I, I pray for folks in this room who need to just return to the Savior and acknowledge, Lord, I, I've, I've allowed some stuff to become so important that it's crowded you out. And again, Lord, thank you that you offer mercy and grace. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.